It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. I just realized I'll never go there again. Oh, shit. I haven't thought about that place in years. The wood-paneled walls and beige-piled carpet in that cool basement, with its smell of damp and the sliding door that opened onto the south. And sometimes that gray, fleecy cat would catch a mouse and eat the whole thing, except for the head and some organs that he left at the bottom of the stairs, so you always had to jump off the last step, just in case. Years since I thought about that, with a big bay window on the second story that looked out over the sudden glory of the ranch, that long slope leading down to the tracks, and beyond that a huge dun distance leading off to the hills. In the foreground, the red iron arm of the irrigation pump, clanking like artillery as it fired off round after round of life into the hay crop. And behind that, running through the scrubland trees, horses. Most of my childhood I spent at least a month out there each summer, a whole twelfth of my life at one point, but now the ranch comes to my mind like the memory of a vague dream tinged by a hazy pain, like the pain of an injury when you roll onto it in your sleep. Why now? They were good times, but not the best. Bad times, but not the worst. Why should memories of that place have become so hard to bear? I'll tell you something interesting that happened out there once. I was... I'm not sure how old. Late enough childhood that my older cousins were just starting to hit puberty, early enough that I was still a ways away, and feeling that vertigo that comes when you first realize the kids you know are going to grow up, and eventually, you are too. That summer there were wildfires. It sounds redundant to say that today, now that the wildfires come every summer and paint the inside of Western Canada's lungs. But back then it was still a rare and ominous thing to watch the sun go down in neon blood. That summer it was just me, my mom, Aunt Danielle, Uncle Kenny, and the cousins at the ranch. The religious cousins hadn't moved in down the road yet, though Uncle Earl and Jesse were living in the old farmhouse at the bottom of the property, near the tracks. Jesse was my cousin too, though, in my mind, he's always filed under some separate category. It's my cousins and Jesse. Jesse had come to join us the evening we heard the first gunshot, 
My cousins and I were sitting on the trampoline out back, watching the dim kaleidoscope of a wildfire sunset, when we saw Jesse trudging up the hill from the farmhouse, the light bloody in his butch-cut hair. I felt my stomach sink at the sight of him. I'll be honest, I didn't like Jesse. He was a year and a bit older and big for his age, when I was small for mine. He was blonde and blue-eyed like almost everyone out in the interior, whereas I was dark enough that people sometimes asked my mom if she was embarrassed. I liked to read books. Jesse liked to catch frogs and hurt them. Actually, I take it all back. I didn't dislike Jesse. Dislike is the kind of things adults say. I hated Jesse, and I feared him, because I knew if he could ever get away with it, he'd take the chance to hurt me too. He came in peace that evening, though, just trudged up to us without saying anything, and flopped down onto the trampoline next to my cousin Larissa, who was a year older than him, and I now think who he was a little bit in love with. I know Larissa saw a different side of him than the rest of us, that he came to her to talk about the things in his life I've learned about since, and that, on some level, he was just a messed up kid who never had a chance. Now that we're all adults, I find it hard to hold a grudge. What little I hear about his life makes me sad, and wherever the hell he is, I hope he finds his way. As an adult, Jesse's a tragic figure, a poor sinner like us all, just scrabbling for the light switch in a darkened room. But as a child, and I know this sounds harsh to say, but there's no getting around it from my perspective, as a child, Jesse was evil. And I think I'm entitled to say that because I was there, and I knew him, and I was a child too. And when you're a child, you can't afford that kind of empathy and circumspection. Because as a child, you're easy to kill. Just watching the sunset, Jesse said, that's pretty gay. Gay was his go-to adjective, but this time he was just being a piece of shit for the sake of formality. He was in a relaxed mood, having spent the afternoon shooting crows with an air rifle, and seemed quite content to watch it with us, chewing on a stem of grass. It's a nice sunset, said Larissa. And, always conscientious, she added, And we don't say that word anymore. What word? Gay? It's pretty gay not to say gay if things are gay, if you ask me. We didn't. And anyway, it's only a nice sunset because of the smoke from all the fires. Whoosh! You know how much of the province is on fire? It's like 16%. All those woods burning up. All the animals burning up in them. That's what you're looking at. It's dead animals up there, making the sun look so pretty. Jesse, stop, said Hannah, who is my own age. What's wrong? He said, sitting up to look at her over Larissa. He no longer sounded so relaxed. Don't like to think about all the animals burning. But it's true. Deers and coyotes and even horses. This was meant to hurt all three of the cousins, whose family livelihood was horses. But it was a special dig at Hannah, who was raising a mare named Casey through the 4-H club. Sorry, Hannah, he said. Forgot you liked horses so much, and didn't want to hear about them getting lit on fire until their bones showed through. Just be careful, you know, and watch out down by the tracks, too. You know, after what happened to that chick over in Chase. That summer, there had been a train derailment in the next town over. The same tracks that passed through the valley by the old farmhouse carried millions of barrels of crude from the tar sands westward to the coast. The railway company claimed the train operator was drunk. The operator's family said he had health problems which had been exacerbated by the smoke from the wildfires, and that even though the company had known this, 
they'd still put him on an 18-hour shift alone. The locomotive had jumped rails on the outskirts of Chase, leading 62 tank cars into an explosion with an 800-meter blast radius. Fifteen people had died, including someone Uncle Kenny had used to work with at the racetrack. Did you hear about that? Jesse said. Yeah, Jesse. Larissa sighed. We heard about it. Oh, everybody heard about the crash. Some bum fell asleep on the tracks. Bum bump Up and over. And after that... He spread his arms. I'm talking about what happened to that chick on the horse. Jesse... Hannah protested. Jesse, what are you doing? Said Larissa. She just looked sad. But Jesse ignored them both. He'd built up a head of steam and now he was staring at the red clouds, completely absorbed into the story he was telling, to the point where it was like he'd forgotten we were even there. He was telling the story to himself, and there was a weird intensity to the way he stared and spoke through clenched jaws. The people closest to the blast, they got vaporized, whiff, just like with nukes. But this chick was riding along the tracks a bit ahead, and she had a dog with her, a collie, just like the one you guys have. When the explosion came, split. all three of their bodies got mashed together by the shockwave and then melted into each other by the heat, so that when they found her body, they couldn't bury her because she wasn't her anymore, and they couldn't put her in a Christian churchyard. So, he shrugged, they just had to leave it by the tracks. By now, the sun was gone, and the only light that remained was a bruise on the horizon's cheek. From the balcony above us, a triangle rang, and Aunt Danielle's voice hollered out that it was time for dinner. Glad for the excuse to get away from Jesse, we jumped up. Just then, something echoed over the low, rolling purple of the hills, from sunset to the place where the moon would rise. What was that? I said. Don't you know, idiot? said Jesse, his eyes widening and a big smile spreading over his face. That was a gunshot. It was twenty minutes later, halfway through a dinner of salad and prem and pickle sandwiches, God preserve us, that Uncle Kenny walked into the kitchen with a shotgun. He had Ty with him, the farm's black border collie, but not Leo, the huge white Marema sheepdog that was supposed to guard the horses from coyote attacks. Kenny, was that you shooting earlier? said Aunt Danielle. Yep, he said, slumping past. There was a wall of guns, farm guns, not gun nut guns, in a room behind Kenny and Danielle's bedroom. I'd seen it once, and it held a mythic, ominous kind of significance in my imagination. At least the room was kept locked. Down at the house by the tracks, Jesse had once showed us the dusty six-shooter kept in a shoebox on top of one of the closets. Christ, it's a miracle he never shot one of us. Danielle waited for Kenny to elaborate on his... Yup. But her husband wasn't a... loquacious man. My mom and I exchanged a glance. What happened? She called after him. One of the horses. His response came floating from the back room. Something got to it. Danielle waited for the rest of the thought, and when it became clear nothing else was forthcoming, she rolled her eyes and muttered, honestly, to my mom before shouting a follow-up question. Care to elaborate there, Kenny? Jesus, woman, what do you want me to say? He appeared in the door and we saw that under the ratty plaid he'd had over his shoulders... The old, white t-shirt spanning his gut was sputtered with blood and dirt. Something got to one of the horses and fucked it up. Language? Excuse me, kids. 
And when I got there, the damn thing was still alive and hurting, and I had no choice but to put it down. Are you happy now? Which horse? said Hannah. Ugh, not Casey, don't worry. Which one? The one with the white hoofs. Snowshoe? Jeez, Hannah, I didn't know you'd named all of them. But Hannah was already fled from the room in tears. After a moment, my mom went to check in on her. Larissa and Luke, who was two years younger than me, had stopped eating and gone pale. Not knowing what else to do, I just sat there and felt bad. Well, did you catch whatever did it, Kenny? said Danielle. Catch it? I've got no idea what the hell it was. What do you mean you don't know what it was? Well, it damn sure wasn't no coyote. Leo scares him off and shit, you should have seen... Language! Sorry, kids. The bite marks this thing left. Too big for a coyote. A puma? I said, trying to be helpful. Cougar, whispered Luke. Thanks, kids. That's what I thought, but... Kenny shook his head. They don't go after horses. In any way, they like to go for the back of the neck. This horse's guts were all ripped. Kenny! What? You're the one asking me all this in front of the kids, Danielle! She dragged him off into the bedroom, and we finished our sandwiches in silence while the sounds of the argument filtered through the wall. The titanic form of winter looms over the world, casting us in shadows deep, dark, and cold beyond reason. But in the distance you see a flicker of warmth, a resting place with a roaring fire and friends, new and old. And at the center of it all, a strange person armed with a story he's just dying to tell you. Click the link in the description and visit the Wrong Station Patreon. Start your seven-day free trial today and explore bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes content, and more. The next day, a yellowish pall hung over the sky. The wildfires were close now, and you could feel a tickle in the back of your throat. Jesse was waiting for us on the balcony after breakfast. Come on, he said. I've got something to show you all. What is it? Hannah said. It's a secret. We all looked at each other. None of us would have gone with him alone, but we didn't think there was anything that could go wrong if we stuck together. And that's how, an hour later, we came to be standing at the edge of a pit in the woods. Everyone look on three, he said. Okay? One, two, three! We all stepped up onto the lip of the pit at the same time, distracted just long enough for Jesse to jump up and shove Hannah forward. She screamed and slid down five feet of dirt to land hard on hands and knees on top of the dead horse. I mentioned that Uncle Kenny wasn't a big talker. He hadn't even begun to describe what had been done to this animal. It had been mauled. Its chest and neck were hamburger wrapped in scraps of leather, and deep wounds still gleamed with congealing arterial blood. Its guts had been pulled out. It was a hollow casing half buried in haste after dark, and half dug up by animals in the night. Animals and, I suspected, Jesse. Hannah's scream turned into a shriek as she found herself covered in dirt and snowshoes blood and swarmed with flies. Her shriek didn't seem to stop. In my memory, it just rolls on and on, driven by some panicked feet of circular breathing. Luke and I had both turned white and stepped back from the edge. It was only Larissa, the eldest, who had seen more of farm life and real life, who kept calm, 
stepped forward and helped her panicked sister out of the pit, getting her white sleeves smeared with blood and dirt in the process. The moment she was up, Hannah ran for the house, and Larissa after her. Jesse was laughing, and Luke and I turned, met each other's gaze, and began to walk after them. Hey! shouted Jesse. Where are you going? I pushed Luke in front of me and sped up. Don't tell me you're going after the girls. You know that makes you girls too, right? I pushed Luke again. We were both at a run, and I heard Jesse chasing after us, still shouting. Go! Go! I shouted, and I was smashed into from behind and hit the ground so hard that my face bounced off. I tried to get up, but there was an iron weight on top of me and Jesse's heavy breathing in my ears. He pressed my neck into the ground with his forearm, using all of his weight, so I couldn't breathe. Say mercy, he said. Mercy, I said. Mercy. Say mercy. He pressed harder. I couldn't breathe. I didn't have air to speak. Mercy. I managed to croak. Say mercy, he shouted. Say it. I tried to say it again, but I don't think any sound came out. Black powder began to form little sand dunes in the corners of my vision. I realized he was going to kill me. I realized that this was how I died. And then, the pressure released, and I was able to gasp in a lungful of air. The weight was still on top of me, but I could breathe again, enough to be able to sob. Say mercy when I tell you to say mercy, he said. I said mercy. The fuck did you say? He applied more pressure again so I was forced to choke out the word mercy again. Did you just contradict me? Please, I said. Mercy? That's what I thought. Hey! The pressure released, and I was able to look up. It was Uncle Kenny, who had just pulled up on a subcompact tractor with a shovel on the front end, clearly bound for the pit. He started it, Jesse said. I don't care. Get off him. Get out of here. <sighs> And then I heard cracking twigs, and Jesse was gone. Say what you will about him, Jesse wasn't stupid. I don't think Kenny would have hesitated to beat someone else's kid. Get up, he said to me, as I lay wheezing on the ground. Stop crying, be a man! What are you doing out here? The... body. I pointed back in the direction of the pit. What? I felt myself being pulled to my feet by iron hands, and he forced my chin up so I was looking him in the eyes. Jesse took us. Don't blame someone else, he said, giving me a shake. I tried to speak. Shut up. If I find out you've been messing around with dead bodies again, I'll whip the hide off you. Now go. He gave me a shove. I went, and when I got back to the house, I was too full of injured pride to tell anyone what had happened. In my dreams that night, I relived my beating at Jesse's hands and woke up in a cold sweat. I was bivouacked on the floor of Luke's room in the basement for the duration of my stay, and since he was still asleep in the pre-dawn blue, I crept out of the room to brood at the sliding door that looked out onto the south. Outside, it was overcast but not raining, so I slid the door aside and walked through the dewy yellow grass to sit cross-legged on the trampoline. The whole world smelled of wood smoke by now. The fires were getting closer. Something like a flake of snow curled down through the air in front of me, and when I reached out to catch it in my hand, I saw it was a little wisp of ash that feathered away into nothingness. There had been talk around the table at dinner of having to evacuate. Aunt Danielle's last position had been 
Let's hope it doesn't come to that. But the woods around here were powder dry this time of year. All it would take was a spark. The world was quiet at this hour, so I was able to hear the tractor coming from all the way at the bottom of the hill. I started jumping on the trampoline, and sure enough I was able to spot Uncle Kenny in the driver's seat. He kept the farmer's hours. He'd been up since full dark. Today, the tractor had the trailer hitched behind it, and there was something in the trailer. Some large, pale body, dark striped and blue tinted by the cobalt glow. What could it be, I thought? Had he caught whatever had killed the horse? And then I realized, no, there was a dog in the trailer. A great, white, hundred-pound Marema sheepdog. Leo. And those dark, glistening streaks were blood. He was supposed to guard the horses. But who guards the guard dog? Whatever had killed Snowshoe had ripped him apart like white tissue paper. I hopped off the trampoline and crept back inside as Uncle Kenny swept a tarp over the trailer, hiding the body for that last drive up the hill. I was lurking out of sight at the top of the basement staircase when he came in, and I overheard snatches of his conversation with Aunt Danielle. Jesus, what are we going to tell the kids? No idea what it could have been. Someone else's dog, maybe? No, Danielle. The Marks. Nothing else it could be but... A person. A person. They thought a person had been killing their animals. It was insane to think about. What kind of person just recklessly kills another living thing? And the moment I thought that... I realized I knew exactly the kind of person who would do that. Jesse. By the next night, the air was thick with smoke, and we had all packed in case the evacuation order came through in the night. And the smoke was thick enough in the upper atmosphere that the dark afternoon smothered out hours before the sun was due to set. I was fully dressed under my blankets when Luke's breathing slowed in the bed above me. And a few moments after that... I was outside in the cool, smoky darkness, the evening dew squeaking under my shoes. A clear night, but the full moon was a dim blood blister through the smoke. On its own, it would barely have been enough to see by. But now, incandescent diadems of flame wreathed the brows of distant hilltops, adding an orange pallor to the night. I made my way down to the house by the tracks, walking along the dry tufts of grass by the edge of the path so my footsteps wouldn't crunch on gravel. I was determined to find evidence that proved Jesse's guilt. The house stood dark. An American Gothic, white boards stained the color of salmon flesh by the distant blaze, windows black and unreflecting. I crept along the ground floor. The dull light of a banker's lamp showed Uncle Earl asleep on a couch in the home office. The next room was Jesse's, and it was empty. And if I'd taken time to check the other windows, I'd have seen an open closet door in the next room over, and an empty shoebox lying on the ground. The front door clicked shut. I froze, pressing myself against the wall. It was a quiet night, so quiet I imagined I could hear the distant howl of fire. Footsteps crunched away down the front path of the old farmhouse, and I stuck my head around the corner of the building in time to see a dim figure following the path down to the corrals, in pursuit of a flashlight's white puddle. Jesse, the moonlight bloody in his butch-cut hair. After a moment's hesitation, 
I followed. I lost him after about a hundred meters. It was quiet enough that I had to stay far back in order to keep from being heard. For a while I was able to follow the bobbing glow of his flashlight. But then, when he reached the corral fence, that light clicked out. I stopped and hid in the scrub, thinking I'd been made. I held completely still, straining my ears. I'm not sure how long it was. It felt like 20 minutes. In that deathly night, it could have been as little as 40 seconds. Eventually, I decided I had to either move forward or back. Even at the time, I realized it was foolish to go forward. But I went forward. My eyes were now well adjusted to the red darkness, and I was able to move quickly without making too much noise. At the corral, I stopped to listen, and heard nothing until my next step forward splashed. It had been a dry summer. Besides a light sweating of dew at dawn and dusk, there was nothing wet I should have stepped in between here and Shoe Swap Lake. I looked down. Dark fluid on the white sole of my shoe, like dark streaks glistening on a Marema sheepdog's fur. Blood. And a few steps away, gleaming darkly, a meniscus of blood clinging between tall stalks of dry grass. A trail of blood, just enough bloody light to follow it by. And so I followed. Down the side of one corral, the fence had been broken. Three thigh-thick rust-painted beams split and tumbled aside. More blood here. A lot more blood. And some tufts of horsehair, sticky with blood between the splinters of the broken beams. Now the trail was a dark and slathered path. Something large had been dragged down toward the train tracks. Jesse would have had to have used a tractor to shift the body of a dead horse, but I couldn't see any sign of treads in the dust. The weight of the body must have scraped them away. But what the hell was he playing at? Where was he taking the body, and why? I didn't have to follow far to find out where. A short way through the dry lodgepole pines, and I was at the tracks. There, between two red reflecting steel rails, in the moon direct above, lay the horse's body spread out like a banquet and broken, torn and sundered so that black blood pooled between the crushed rocks of the track ballast. I stood for a moment in awed silence. No wind passed through the trees. The only movement was the distant trembling of the fire line as it drew inexorably closer. Here, at least, the smell of smoke was drowned out in my nostrils, but drowned out by the smell of blood. A soft snow of ash began to fall, perfect little flakes settling against the surface tension of spilt blood and then thickening into it. And then I was struck from behind and then dragged backwards by an arm around my neck. I grunted and kicked out. A hand closed over my mouth to stifle any sound, and my heel struck a kneecap, causing my attacker to stumble back. Shut up! Jesse hissed in my ear. Shut the fuck up! I could feel the cold cylinder of a dusty six-shooter tucked into the front of his belt, and I thrashed even harder as he dragged me back off the tracks and into the darkness of a wooden structure that had half-collapsed sometime in the past century. Shut up and stay still or we're both dead. Do you understand? He hissed again. I was still struggling, but he compressed my windpipe until black ash fell like snow through my vision, and I went limp. Not a moment too soon, because 
It seemed almost a heartbeat later. It returned to its kill. In the soft hush of falling ash, claws and hoofbeats rang against the railway ties. A strange shape in the bloody darkness. Its knees bent the wrong way for a horse, and its front legs clicked with five-toed paws. It reached down with a long snout, already bloodstained, and began to tear into the carcass, not with the violence of hunger, but of fury, as it ripped and tore at the body, its own warped, burned flesh fissured and split, litting out little drools of blood and clear fluid. It must have been painful, for the creature moaned and then thrashed with rage, and when that wasn't enough, it reached out with its paws and took hold of straps and scraps of entrail with its clawed thumbs and began to rip and tear, flinging ribbons of meat through the night. And when even that wasn't enough, it fell to its knees and screamed at the red moon, beating the carcass with its hoofed fists, its voice some chilling blend of howl, whinny, and a raspy human shout. It's her, Jesse whispered, letting me go. From the train crash at Chase, the woman with the dog and the horse. It was impossible. He'd made that up. Another scream tore open the night sky, though the ash was now falling thick enough to fill the creature's mouth and gum up the fissures in its flesh. Jesse crept to the mouth of the wooden structure and stared out at it. Her transfixed, his eyes wide and childlike, reflecting the red moon's glow. I've been watching her, he murmured. She comes up and down the tracks every night. She doesn't know what she is anymore. She feels angry all the time because of what they did to her. She's so angry that she doesn't even know what to do with it. Then, before I could stop him, he stepped out into the night his footsteps snapping the dry grass that spiked from the necks of the rail bed. The creature was preoccupied, ripping chunks from the horse's body with its fangs and then spitting them out. It was only when Jesse murmured, Hey, that it whipped around to face him, gaping with its bloody maw. He held the dusty six-shooter out in front of him. His hand trembled. The eyes that looked up at him were clouded with horrendous pain, confused but dark and intelligent. It stepped slowly toward him, and I saw his hand shake even more. Blood dripped from its teeth to scab on the bright rails. Do it, I thought, as the two of them stared into each other's eyes, and time crept past like a wounded animal. Do it, you fucking coward. You like to hurt things so much, why can't you do it when it counts? But Jesse's whole body was shaking, and there were silent tears rolling down his cheeks. The creature took another slow step toward him, and just when I thought that he was dead for sure, it did something unexpected. It looked at the gun for a long moment, and then looked at Jesse, and then pressed its forehead into the end of the shaking steel barrel, and then waited. Jesse's chin trembled. There was snot sitting on his upper lip. The gun went off and split the night. 
Animal instinct took over and the creature spooked, sprinting off into the darkness. Jesse fell to his hands and knees in the gravel, a plume of smoke still diffusing where he'd fired into the air. I went to stand beside him, and we watched together as that deformed silhouette loped toward the distant flames. So angry about what they've done to her, he said. Then he looked up at me in the darkness. Sometimes I feel like that. You know? And that was almost the last time I spoke to Jesse. We walked back to the house in silence, and early next morning the evacuation notice came. It was the last time we'd see the house, the ranch, all of it. I did see Jesse again, briefly, three summers later, but we didn't really talk. He'd looked sad then. He'd looked rough. But that was the end of the period of my life that I spent out west. The few family things I've been to since, he's avoided. I think only Larissa hears from him anymore, now and again. And I wish I could tell you Jesse stopped hurting frogs after that night, but he didn't. All the same, I feel sorry for him. I feel sorry for him, and I feel sorry for the woman from Chase blown up by the black tanks of oil, and I feel sorry for all the woods that burned, and I feel sorry for myself because the place I once spent a twelfth of my life is now all cindered up and gone. I feel sorry, and sometimes I feel angry. So angry that I don't even know what to do with it. The Wrong Station is made possible by the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Consider visiting today at patreon.com slash thewrongstation. You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, or wherever it is that you listen to The Wrong Station. This week's episode, Horses, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Botello. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte-Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmid. You can subscribe to The Wrong Station on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and any other of your favorite podcast services. You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. You can also follow The Wrong Station creative team on Twitter at AEW Saxton, AJV Batello, and Jacob BRDS. And until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>